everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You are listening to It's All About Food. Thank you for joining me. Hey, you know, I just realized, so we are airing this show on March 21st, but we're recording it on March 20th, which is the first day of spring. And we'll get to that in a minute. But it's also very close to the 14th anniversary of this podcast. I just recognized that I started on March 25th, 2009. So I think next week we'll have like a little celebration. How does that sound? Okay, good. That's for next week. Party next week. Today I'm talking with Jimmy Videli, and he is a farmer, activist, consultant, and researcher. He has been a consultant, researcher, and volunteer with AUM Films, the producers of Cowspiracy and What the Health. We know who they are. The Humane Party USA and the Animal Protection Party Canada. He lives with his wife, Melanie Bernier, and five rescue cats on the small-scale veganic market farm, La Ferme de Laube, in Bolo, Quebec. And he has been growing his own food and homesteading for over 25 years and became a professional full-time organic farmer in 2005. From 2010 to 2014, he worked and consulted on 11 vegan, organic, and permaculture farms throughout Hawaii, Mexico, Central America, South America, and Quebec before settling at his current home in 2014. And Jimmy is with us here to talk about his new book, The Veganic Grower's Handbook, Cultivating Fruits, Vegetables, and Herbs from Urban Backyard to Rural Farmyard. Jimmy, bienvenue. Welcome to It's All About Food. Thank you so much, Karen. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you all for listening. Yeah. So you've been all around, haven't you? It's been quite a journey. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Yes, and it's been your book talks about your journey. We're, and you've been to many different farms in Arizona and in tropical regions, and now you're in Quebec. So you've seen a lot of different climates and you've farmed different kinds of crops and maybe in different ways. So I'd say you're a very experienced farmer. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I, uh, for me, I've been very lucky and very blessed to have had my hands in so many different soils and in so many different regions. It just get, get, has given me so much more insight into what the rest of the world is like instead of just farming in one location for a small period of time. Uh, so yes, it's been a great journey and I'm very, very fortunate to have been able to do that. Now we're recording this on the first day of spring, March 20th. What does that mean to a farmer? Well, for a farmer, it means that the days of uh, the ground opening up, the first green shoots pushing out of the soil, for us it meant, well, we started planting in our greenhouse four days ago, so a few days before spring. It's always about our opening day. So the first onions have pushed out of their little seedling trays, and our artichokes are starting to break the surface, and we have our first rapini greens and kales and lettuces. So for a farmer, it's full of hope and promise. And every year it's the same. It, we follow that cycle, that circle of the year. And spring is the hopeful time. I imagine farming is a lot of work. We may get into that in our conversation today. But you look very calm, happy, and relaxed. And it's the first day of spring. So tell us about that. 
Well, I think that over the course of my journey, I've not always been a farmer. There was a time where I also had a day job and I had a suit and tie and I talk about that in my book and, you know, stress for that kind of environment, living, working under those false lights and, and, and working on a computer. It's, it's difficult. It's difficult for the soul. It's difficult for the brain. It's awful for the skin. So when I had the opportunity to start growing my own food, that was my my release. That was my salvation, being able to come home after that five day or even six day a week job and put my hands in the earth. And at that point, it was in northern Arizona. And uh, I think that's really the only thing that kept me sane. So when this idea came about that I could transition my life to one where I was doing that all the time, I thought, wow, what could be better for every part of me? And in the end, that's exactly what it feels like every single year. And the well, great I thing about being a farmer or homesteader is that you really do follow the circle of the year. You know, you, you, you're really hopeful and joyous at this time of year. And in summer, the harvest is in full swing. And in fall, everything you're trying to harvest as fast as possible. And in the wintertime, you just, you're quiet. You hibernate. You know, we, we follow the rhythm of the animal world. We follow the rhythm of the plant world. And that's what's so beautiful about living a, harms, a homestead or a farming life. Well, it sounds like you have found your bliss. I th One I th of them. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's in our DNA to grow food because that was how humans ended up not only surviving, but thriving and growing. Uh, but I know plenty of people that don't want to have anything to do with soil or dirt. And, and somehow we've, we've taught ourselves that through socialization and culture somehow. But a lot of people love gardening. And it, it's a wonderful thing, especially for children, to see things popping out of the earth and then seeing how they change and then being able to get the gifts and eat what you've grown. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. Yeah, that's a thing for us. Now, you're also a pretty good writer. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's who you are and if you've worked at writing or if you're just very observant and and in love with nature so much that you just report what you're seeing, but it all sounds very poetic when you talk about it. Um, yeah, that's, uh, well, that's very lovely for you to say. No, it, it's been one of my other passions for a while. You never know where some creative passions are going to take you. But like my wife always tells me, it says, no matter what happens with it, if you enjoy it, if it's what gives you love and joy, well, then you just do it. It doesn't matter where it goes. And, and we all have a creative energy. Some of us, it's music. Actually, that was my first one. Um, some of it's, it's writing, some it's art, some it's communication, some it's video. Some, there are so many ways for us to be creative, um, that this is something that isn't always pay, paying us, but it doesn't matter that this is the part of our soul that, that, that needs to always push out. We need to carve out that time. And this is something that I have been fortunate to do. I, I, I didn't realize anybody would like it enough to publish it. So I say thank you to Lantern and, and my two editors, Brian Normoyle and Pauline LaFosse, because without them, 
really it was just a bunch of words splattered on a page, but they're the one who put it together into something pretty. <laughs> okay, well, it, it has a nice flow through the seasons and uh, a great guide in the back to all the different things people can grow and think they need to know about it. So this is a veganic growers handbook, and we're going to talk about veganic. It's interesting because one of the first shows I did when I started this podcast back in 2009, it was two months. I was two months into it. I had Stefan Grillo and Megan Kelly on the show, and we talked about veganics. And I noted that I noticed that they both gave testimonials in your book. So we learned yeah, a lot very. about veganics back then, 14 years ago. And I have also spoken with Will. Will Bonsall, who's a fascinating character. <laughs> so I imagine you learned a bit from them. Yeah, when I first, I was working, uh, volunteering with Ohm Films and Cowspiracy right before it came out. And uh, the, one of the producers and directors, Kip Anderson, has been a longtime friend of mine. Uh, we were actually roommates in college. And when I knew that when... I was going to help promote this film in Eastern Canada. Um, I, I knew that one, I needed to become vegan because I wasn't yet. So that was in 2014 when I became vegan. But I also wanted to transition my entire understanding of agriculture, farming and growing to this idea of veganics, which was not actually Kip, but his co-producer Keegan, who told me all about. And I was linked to the Veganic Agriculture Network with Megan and Stefan. And I met Stefan at the very first vegan festival in Montreal in 2014. And from there, the light just shined. I had just, we had just purchased this place here in Boileau, Quebec. Um, nobody had ever cultivated it before, um, but we knew being vegan that there was no way that we could use any products from exploited animals. We, we, we wanted to do it all from a plant-based perspective. And with their sort of mentorship, I mean, really, they have been my mentors all the way along and been my 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 chief cheerleaders. Um, <laughs> I uh, I have been fortunate to then be able to take a lot of the principles that they took and transform them into a small scale farming model and further the practice even more, taking taking understandings of agriculture that I had before and and using veganics to to change what is commonly thought of of how we need to grow which is normally with the use of animals and and their and their products you did mention in the book another book the good life by helen and scott neering and they left their careers during the depression and started farming i think in Vermont and Maine, perhaps. Yeah. I, it's been a long time yeah. since I read. But one of the things that stuck with me in that book, aside from the fact that they were vegan, is they were always told what they couldn't do. Everybody said, oh, no, you can't grow that or you can't grow that here. And they just figured things out. And I got a sense that you experienced some of that in your own farming yeah, when I was in Arizona and we became organic farmers, it was all conventional farming around us or all animal agriculture around us. So when we started farming organically, uh, everybody said, you can't grow. The soil's no good. You can't grow here. 
and I don't know what it is. I, I think that unfortunately we take a lot of advice or we get a lot of opinions from our neighbors who may have not been so successful in their own gardening or farming ventures. And instead it's better to take, which I didn't have at the time, but it's now I do. And now other people do with my book. You want to take you want to take the people that have actually been successful and that are showing a positive light and not successful from a monetary standpoint, successful from just a heart from just a cultivating standpoint, somebody who can grow a good tomato plant or a good radish or, or a good bunch of beets or a good carrots, you know, it, it can all grow. I mean, really in the end, it's just about persistence. And I think in a lot of ways, gardening goes hand in hand with me being a vegan activist, because there are so many people that I used to meet when I first became a vegan activist said, oh, no, that's not right. 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 And you just have to keep coming back to yourself and you say, but I, I know it's right. Mm. And I know it's right for all beings and all animals and for all people and for the planet. I, I understand that we need to change things. Now, I understand that most people don't. Well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing with gardening and with farming. Um, you just need to have confidence in yourself. Plants want to grow. You just have to give them a little bit to get them there. And so, yes, I met a lot of, there was a lot of barriers and a lot of walls along the way. But the good thing is, is that I'm Italian and German. So the Italian side says, oh, I can do whatever I want. The German side says, you're not right. I am. So um, I guess they have a really hard head. <laughs> That's really good. Okay. So can you explain veganic to us and I also want to know, is there a definition that includes the rules or is there some sort of fluidity? Because you talk about doing no spraying at all. And I'm wondering, is that your thing or is that included in the understanding of veganic? So tell us. Okay. So veganics in a nutshell is the cultivation of, of, food and fiber crops without the exploita exploitation of any animals or their byproducts like manures, like um, slaughterhouse byproducts, like fish meal, fish emulsion. Um, but it also takes it further in that we are, at least in North America, you asked about spraying, so I'm going to bring that up. In North America, we have created a standard. Um, I had a group of people in uh, last year in 2022, that all came together and we hashed out a veganic standard. Um, it's actually on a website and, and an organization that I co-founded called the Certified Certified Veganic or the North American Veganic Certification Standard. Mm. This is for farmers, small homesteaders, anybody who wants validity to what they do. We have a series of standards very similar to what the organic standards look like, 1.1, 1.2, 2.1 explaining everything that we do. Now, the spraying one or the use of any kind of, say, pesticide, insecticide, and in or in organics, unfortunately, there's a lot of insecticide use, um, use, using plants to make insecticide, but these are still very, very toxic. Um, so when we were looking at the standards and when I was thinking about it here, when we started here in Boileau in 2014, I realized that by spraying anything, you're, 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 changing the entire dynamic of the biodiversity that you're trying to create. So if you're growing flowers to bring in bees and butterflies, but then you're spraying a plant right next to it, well, the bees or butterflies just don't go on the flowers. They fly everywhere. So if they're going to go onto the spray, they're going to get 
some sort of toxicin toxin in their bodies. And when that happens, then you end up you end up doing you end up um, how do I say you you end up changing. Um, excuse me, I'm losing my words. You end up you you end up um, limiting what you were trying to do by creating the diversity. So by creating floral diversity, you're bringing in insect diversity. And when you spray, you're going to deplete that insect diversity. So when we thought about it, we said, well, could we just eliminate that entire principle? And pretty much everybody in the room said, yeah, yeah. I mean, you might, people have, who have been using it to get certain crops, certain cabbage family crops, certain brassica family crops, um, they may need to spray or felt like they need to spray for certain worms that were eating their cabbages or their broccoli. But there are other techniques and other methods that we can use, and we explain all of that in our in our certification standard. So yeah, in a nutshell, it is not using animals, not using their products. We don't spray in North America. That's the standard now. They actually have the same standard in the UK, the stock-free organic standard. What they say over there is that it's highly discouraged. But in the end, we talk to those people, they don't they don't want you using it either um, because they know that even something that seemed very benign, like a like a safer soap, like a like a insecticidal soap, that's basically like your dish soap, it's going to do damage to some beings that you want or it's it's going to take away those beings that say spiders live on. Say spiders are carnivorous beings. We want spiders in our garden. We want spiders to live. They eat aphids. Well, if you spray for aphids, the spiders will go away. And then guess what? The aphids will come back in full force and then you'll have more aphids and you'll have no spiders. So it's kind of like that. It's kind of like, if you're going to create the circle, keep the circle. Don't do something to put a hole or a crack in the circle. And that's what we're also trying to accomplish. I don't know what a conventional farmer would think of reading this guidebook. And I hate using the word conventional because there's nothing conventional about industrial farming today, but that's what we call it. <laughs> it's ironic. Uh, but when I read it, not only does it make sense, but I feel this spiritual connection somehow in the way you talk about all life on earth. And how there's a place and there's space for us to grow food amongst everyone else. All the, the fauna and flora. And there's something for everyone to eat. And if we just keep the balance, everybody's fed. Makes sense to me. Well, I'm glad that came. I'm glad that came through because, yeah, in the end, that's that's really the ultimate point. Is that if we want to look back to our roots, you talked about that we have it in our genes. It's probably one of our most indigenous of understandings. This idea that we can cultivate our own foods. Um, we used to do it back. Our ancestors used to do it. My ancestors came from North Africa, since I'm from the southern southern tip of Italy. So my ancestors, they might have had some sort of grains or maybe some kind of sorghum. Well, they realized that there were certain plants wild that they could use. And there were others that weren't good. 
And so what they did is that they would take the seeds and then they would scatter those seeds the next year. They would still have the other plants growing that, that they wouldn't eat, but then they would scatter the ones that they could. So they would just create these sort of more volunteer first <laughs> agriculture patches. And now we're starting to see archaeological evidence that some of these some of these sites that are now drying up, unfortunately, from global from global climate change and worldwide droughts, especially in Middle Eastern countries, um, we're starting to see that they're able to find these sort of cave sites where there are still these these um, these car they can do this carbon dating so that they can find these seeds that they were actually growing a couple hundred thousand years ago. So what turns out is that we were actually agriculturalists even longer than we thought. 200,000, 300, 400, 500,000 years ago, we've been cultivating our own food in some way. And to me, this is just incredible. And it sits right in me. It sits right in all of us. Where does permaculture fit into this, if at all? No, permaculture is a very, very fantastic concept. So permaculture and its in its primordial form, I guess, is permanent culture. The idea of having perennial plants that we use and that we eat and that all beings use. So this would be, so in a gardening system, there was this would be things like rhubarb, things we know, rhubarb, strawberries, blueberries, fruit trees, nut trees, asparagus, mint, lemon balm, chives, uh, perennial onions. So we're talking about a lot of fruits and vegetables and nuts and grains that either self-seed themselves or come back from their roots, which are perennial every year. So permaculture, and there is actually a veganic permaculture book that's pretty cool out of the UK by a gentleman by the name of Graham Burnett. And it's basically the principle that, yeah, you create systems in your garden where plants use certain spacing and other plants use other spacing. So you have small plants and you have taller plants and you have bigger plants. So this is permaculture going to a food forest. But this idea that you have all of these plants working together. Now, what we do here, because we're a small farm, is we do actually have rows. But within those rows, there is always these plants that intermingle. So because we grow and we also save our own seeds. So let's say we are growing uh, cilantro. And so the cilantro grows, and then at a certain po point, the cilantro goes up to seed, and then you have your coriander seed, right? So you mm -hmm. eat the coriander, you eat the cilantro, but the coriander will fall. Corianders make a ton of flowers, and they make a ton of seeds, and then the coriander seed falls. Well, the next year, it all sprouts. Well, let's say that year we're planting our beans. Well, we're going to let it sprout, and we're going to let it grow up with the beans, so now you've got sort of this sort of haphazard permaculture. So yeah, well, permaculture is a very, very interesting concept. The only thing that I have seen around the world about permaculture is that permaculturists really need to figure out a way where they can walk so that they can harvest. Because permaculture is great at growing a lot, a lot of plants, a lot of foliage, a lot of green matter. But what I noticed in a couple of permaculture farms, it was almost impossible to get to the plants that they wanted to eat because everything else was growing so abundantly. This was a specific in the tropics in Costa Rica and Ecuador. So if you are a permaculturalist, a veganic permaculturalist, and you wanna continue with those methods described by Bill Mollison from Australia, which, is, which are fantastic methods, then just make sure you create some sort of path. It doesn't have to be a straight line. It can be a nice spiral. 
It can be whatever you want it to be, but make sure you have a way to get to where you want to harvest. Otherwise, you're just doing it just for the benefit of nature, which is great. But then you're buying your food from the grocery store, which is not so great. <laughs> All right. So let's go into the book a little bit. And sure. you go through the seasons and talk about the work and your observations and recommendations and resources. I want to talk about manure and compost and the difference between a veganic compost and an animal manure of compost. And we could even talk about human manure too in there, which you mentioned in the book. Uh, because some people really believe you've got to have animal manure to grow anything. And we know that's not true. And it might even be beneficial not to use the manure. You tell us. <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a really excellent question. And before I even answer, I'm just going to say, and in, in, from when this airs on the 21st, in two days after that, I'm actually doing a YouTube show entirely on veganic composting. So if anybody wants to come, it's there. It's free. Jimmy Videlli, Veganic Grower YouTube channel at 1.30 p.m. Eastern time. Great. Okay, I'll, include, so, I'll, I'll include a link on this podcast for that. Thank you, Karen. That's awesome. Yeah, because it's a very, very important topic. And it's actually the key to veganics. Um, the way that we transition every farm, the way that we start every veganic garden um, without the use of manures is to use veganic compost. So we'll start there. So what is veganic compost? So veganic compost is going to be any mixtures of browns or carbonous material and greens or nitrogenous, nitrogenous material. In order to make this, you're going to need to have a one-to-one, -one, basically one part green material, like green grass, like green hay, like garden waste, or and one part brown material, which is like dried leaves, dried plant material, uh, chipped branch wood, which is another one. Now, interestingly, pretty much everywhere around North America, Canada, United States, and in the UK, and in Australia, as far as I know, there are places that are already making this type of veganic compost. You can actually go and purchase it. Mm. Even in California, where my dad lives, there's a nursery called Slopes, and he can go and they have their own packaged bag veganic compost. They don't call it vegan. They call it live mulch slopes compost, no manure. And some of them are actually saying that now. They're saying no manure compost. The benefit of a veganic compost is that after you make that pile, after it starts to cook and heat, and you turn it maybe once or twice, within about six to eight weeks, you have compost you can use. Because plants are not toxic when they're breaking down. There is absolutely no toxicity. It's not to say that the plants are, all the plants are gonna want that sort of fresh or new compost, but there's no toxicity to the plants. The, the, the plant material will continue to break down as it goes and mixes in with the native soil. So if you, if you make a compost pile that you'll learn in, on the 23rd of March, if you'll make a compost pile the way that I suggest and you use it um, in the way that I suggest, then you're going to have um, a system where you're constantly creating more compost because in your, in your gardens or in your small farms or in your homesteads, a compost creates more compost. Think of it from a forest perspective. If you walk into the forest, 
there's all sorts of decaying plant material at the end of fall, hmm. but also the dried leaves have fallen. They're sitting on top. And then in the winter time, when it gets windy and the snows are rough or it rains, the branches fall and that falls on top. Well, in the spring, you have all these plants shoot up because they have all of that rich material. They have all that dying green material from the plants. They have all the dried brown material from the from the, from the leaves. And then they also have all that dried chipperous wood material that then ends up providing nutrients for the microorganisms, which is our living soil, to fuel those plants that all grow. So if you walk in the forest, there's not a single forest alive where there isn't something growing green in the spring. And guess what? There's almost no manure, okay? Mm. If you walk into a forest, if you walk into a natural forest, like what you will not see is a bunch of cows running around. Right? There are no wild cows in North America that run through a forest. Now, mm -hmm. there are animals, right? There are deer, there are wolves up here where we live, there are turkeys, but the amount of manure that would actually fall onto the ground is minuscule. Like I can walk through a forest and not even see anything, a few deer pellets, but that's not gonna create anything. Whereas the vast amount of what you're seeing composting is plants. So that's the idea behind using veganic compost is that plants, trees, bushes, flowers, vegetables, roots, everything understands plants better than they would understand animal manure. To answer your question, animal manure, why is it not so good? So animal manures are basically the digested material of all those goodness from plants. So a cow will eat green matter that we can't necessarily eat. That's, that's what cows do. That's what ruminants do. They eat grasses. Mm. They eat kind of clovers. They eat, they eat greens that we can't digest all that well. And then they convert that to their energy, and then they convert that into their mass and into their lives. It, you can kind of think of it as, as the way the buffalo used to range all throughout North America from, from the north to the south. They were eating all of that green material. They were maybe leaving some manure here and there, and then they were traveling 2,000 miles every winter or every season, every, uh, every spring to winter and back again. That's how that they would travel. But that manure, that manure is just all the undigested material from the animal. So they're taking all of that good green, all of that good, all those good nutrients and vitamins and carbohydrates from the green material. They're digesting it. They're using it as energy, as what they need. And when they deposit their manure, it's basically the leftover. So it really doesn't have a lot of nutrient by itself in it. So if you were to just buy just manure, and you could get it some places, most of the time they say composted manure, but if you would just go to say, <laughs> this would be really gross, a, 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 a concentrated animal feeding operation, uh. and just take up a big pile of manure and put it in your garden, nothing would grow. That's why wow. if you go, if you've ever seen one, which I hope nobody has, but if you have, like I've seen one, there's nothing growing there because it's completely toxic. Right. So manure, right? right? Yeah. I'm thinking okay. of the feedlots I've passed and I've been on one and I, I, it, I never connected those dots. There's nothing growing. Yeah. No, no, there's absolutely nothing there. Um, so manure in itself is toxic. 
The way that they make manure not toxic is by adding <laughs> green material or <laughs> brown material, plant material to. So if you think about like on a smaller system, most people, what they're doing is they're taking the manure along with, say, all the straw bedding or all something else, and they're mixing that all up together. I actually did this in Arizona. It was my primary use of, of fertilization, which was actually an alfalfa hay goat manure. But the amount of alfalfa hay to goat manure was probably like 12, 15 to one. There was so much plant material that it was actually that, that I realized now, or when I was writing the book, that this is what was actually making the fertility for my soil. So manure by itself is toxic. So you actually do have to let it sit and compost six months or 12 months. And what is in manure? E. coli, salmonella, if you're talking about chickens, uh, was it, I think for pigs, it's trichinosis. All of the really bad bacteria that actually, all of these bacteria live in us and they live in all animals, but they become very powerful when they're concentrated in manures. And that's why we end up getting these food recalls, these, these E. coli re recalls when people are using manure or they're downstream from, from a dairy or something else. And that water ends up permeating, say the spinach grains. I think this was something that happened about eight or nine years ago. So by itself, it's not a good product. Um, I'm it thinking manure manure is literally a waste product of raising animals for food. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, it is the animal's waste, but it's a product that is now sold and used. Be, and it is a waste product from growing animals. I said that, but I'm kind of like having a little epiphany here. But yeah, there's so much of it because we raise an obscene amount of animals for food every year that we can't even use it up. There are these toxic mountains, toxic lagoons, and I really don't know what's going to happen to any of that in the neighborhoods that they're in, especially in, in like in North Carolina where they're raising pigs. It, the air is polluted. The water is toxic. And how, how do we keep up with that? It's insane, but they want to spread it all over the world on all of our plants as fertilizer. <laughs> and I think that this is the most, and I think actually this is the most, probably the most interesting, interesting uh, understanding of it all is that the only reason that we use this much manure, the only reason I think that agriculture schools, they push it, they, uh, gardening and farming books, they push it is because it is basically everywhere and the industry has gotten under the skin of people that should be growing without using it at all um because you're right there's nowhere to put it i mean there are <laughs> mount literally mountains of it everywhere yeah southern southern canada is polluted to a level of like twenty three thousand pounds per acre of manure and supposedly in the best case scenario you should only have maybe six or seven thousand pounds per acre per year and that is a ton in the united states alone we produce enough manure in four days to cover the entirety of the continental united states so you're right everything else and 
this is the thing that when people talk about raising animals and this whole oh, this whole regenerative agriculture movement that is so popular right now, right? They don't talk about the fact that impoverished communities are suffering from these manure runoffs because it's all like you're talking about North Carolina. It's all filtering in to where the poorest people are living. Why? Because the houses are the cheapest. Why? Because it smells like hell. The water's no good. The air's no good. So of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just just breathe. Let's problem. breathe here. Let's breathe here. And you have a solution. And that's veganic gardening. And it's a beautiful it. thing. It's a beautiful that's thing. Um, so let's talk now about I want to talk about nutrient density, and then I wanted to go to the, let's see here. Oh, yeah. Nutrient density and then nutrient deficiencies. Okay. That's kind of what I wanted to talk about and and how it compares to, I'm going to air quote here conventional industrial farming. Okay, so in conventional industrial farming, every year, let's say um, somebody is raising, I'm not even gonna touch corn and soy because, well, the only thing I'll say about corn and soy is that it's monoculture crops. 80% of the soy in North America is used to feed animals. Corn, about 35% now, now it's going into ethanol. It's going into all sorts of other corn products. And it's raised in a way where it's awful. So what they do, and this really doesn't change between corn, soy, cabbages, broccoli, lettuce, it doesn't matter. They will flood their fields first with some sort of a herbicide to kill all the plants, fungicide, kill all the funguses. And then they'll go ahead and plant their crops by putting down some sort of conventional fertilizer with the hope that what's going to happen is the plants are going to pull up what they need and they're going to create big heads of cabbages, which they do. They actually were pretty successful with this. They, they, they create big, big cabbages. But a cabbage only needs so much. <laughs> and the rest of the nutrients end up flowing away. So along with the manures, there's all of this extra nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium that's creating these algal blooms in the Gulf of Mexico or creating pollutant streams or pollutant rivers. Okay, so nutrient density is the idea that a plant only needs what it needs and it knows exactly what it needs to grow and to thrive. So if you have a tomato plant that is green, is healthy, puts on beautiful flowers, puts on fruit and the fruit is tasty, that it had every one of the 17 macro and micronutrients that it needed to thrive. If it didn't, then it was missing something. And that'll get into nutrient deficiencies. Hmm. Nutrients can only be uptipped by the plants at a certain moisture level. So let's just assume you have a healthy soil, which most soils are pretty good. Most soils have at least a little bit of everything. If you say grow that tomato plant and it's doing everything, it's doing everything it should, then you have all the nutrients available. If it's too wet, then there's going to be certain nutrients that it can't pick up. 
if it's too dry, then it also has. Now, the interesting part is, is that, and this is where most gardeners fail, and this is my number one tip, don't water your plants too much. Don't love them too much. The drier they are, the more stressed they are, the tastier all the fruits and vegetables and herbs are gonna be. Because the nutrients that they're picking up are actually more readily available. It's called bioavailability. More they're more available at a drier soil level. Where you start getting into nutrient deficiency problems is exactly the same thing. It's either going to be too wet or too cold. And there's a couple of interesting ones where people start their own seedlings, which this is a big chapter in my book, and it's an extremely complicated thing to accomplish. Tried to make it very, very simple, but once you get it as a gardener, then you can grow all the different kinds of tomato plants you want and pepper plants you want, mm. eggplants you want, really lovely thing. But there's one that, that pops that pops up its head all the time, and it's a it's called phosphorus uptake. Now, phosphorus is extremely important for the root systems of all plants. So if there is not enough phosphorus, then the root systems will be weak and the plant will be compromised. But phosphorus is only available, only bioavailable when the soils are dry enough. So when we're watering our seedlings in the house or outside, watering, 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 because we're trying to get them to germinate, and then we keep watering, 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 well, all the phosphorus kind of uh, leaches away. So if we keep it drier, then the phosphorus gets uptake, and then you won't have phosphorus deficiency. Um, also with phosphorus, it also permeates when seedlings are too cold or when crops get too cold. So here where we are in the north and even in New York, there's a time where it's a little bit cold, but you still want to try to grow because the time is right, because it's spring and we all want to, and it's fun. Um, you, uh, If it gets too cold, then what will show is kind of a purple tinge underneath the leaves. And this is pretty common in all of our brassica family, like our broccoli and our cabbages and our kales, uh, as well as our tomatoes. And what it's showing, and this is so great about plants, they're actually showing you what they are missing. They're showing that they can't uptake phosphorus. So it's because they're either too wet or too cold. And in a lot mm. of cases, it's they're just too cold. So the difference between nutrient density, nutrient deficiency. It's interesting because what we're really looking for is balance. And humans thrive in a balanced environment and plants survive in a balanced environment. And you have to recognize the balances and the imbalances. And this thing about being stressed, even humans, we need a certain amount of stress in our lives that, that makes us stronger. Too much stress obviously breaks us down. And I remember reading about how herbicides and pesticides make the plants lazy because they don't have to fight against the bugs. And as a result, the plants aren't as strong and they're not as nutrient dense because the plants aren't working out. There you That's go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> okay. Now, a lot of publications that talk about farming and talk about our history with agriculture always marvel and are pleased with the fact that very few people now grow our food and most of us can go off and do other things. Whereas a long time ago, everybody had to grow their own food. 
And I don't know that this is a good thing. It makes me nervous too that I live in the city and I don't grow my own food because I know some disaster is going to happen at some point. And food is going to be very valuable if you have it. And if you don't, well, good luck. So I don't think bigger is better. And when you're talking about the kind of farming that you're talking about, it sounds like it needs more attention than the industrial farms want to give their farms. It's it's difficult to give each individual plant the, the attention, the love, the care, the nurturing it needs when everything is automated and you're using machines and you want to minimize the number of people that are working on your farm. So you think that's the way we need to go? We need to go back a little to go forward, shrink our farms, get more people involved, get more hands in the soil? Yeah, actually, I really, I really, really do. I really believe that we need to break down the agricultural industrial complex. Um, you know, Mr. Ford had a great idea with the assembly line and the plant with making cars. I guess, because you can make them fast. But you know what? You you can't make a tomato fast and you shouldn't make a tomato fast. You should, you, you should allow it to go at its own pace, wherever region you are, wherever you live. And yeah, this whole automated system of growing food where we forget as human beings that it is the second most important thing that we do every day behind drinking water is what we eat. So if we... If we are actually, I mean, we spend more time, we spend more time picking our cell phones, finding who's going to cut our hair, figuring out what we're going to wear, than we even really think about where our food comes from and who's growing it, right? So yeah, it is the biggest empowering thing that we have is for us to grow at least some of our own food. And yes, if we were to take, I love this example. So if we were to take a 1000 acre there's a there's a there's a cattle a regenerative cattle farm in um misery misery georgia and they employ 180 people for 2000 acres great good for you it was amazing i actually had a debate with him a few weeks ago i think that's great you've been able to bring back a town but if you were to take a veganic small scale system and if you were to take that 2,000 acres and turn it into 1,000 two-acre farms where one acre was used to grow vegetables and one acre was used to plant, say, what's called cover crops or green manures to then fertilize all your fields because you need to have that space. And I really believe it's about one-to-one. -one. You need one acre of of land to grow, say, alfalfa or green hay or clover, or just to grow flowers. So you have the pollinators come in to grow one acre of vegetables. Well, it takes two people to run a one acre farm, a one acre veganic farm. So on that 2,000 acres now, we're 1,000 acres, following my map, where 1,000 acres are used for planting. You can employ 2,000 people. You can have 1,000 family-run farms where mm -hmm. two people are making a lovely living 
They're supplying food to their communities. They're creating vast cooperatives or farmers markets and, and the food is all local. And in certain places you can grow even most of the year in Georgia, you can grow almost nine months. So where this particular gentleman, who I have a lot of respect for by the way, because uh, I, I have respect for anybody who has their hands in the earth, um, can employ 180 people on a 2000 acre farm. A veganic model, we can employ 2000 people. So really in the end, it's not a question of, is it possible? Is it scalable? How can we do it? How we do it is very simple. What we need is we need people to decide that this is the life that they want to lead. This is the life that they want to lead for themselves, that they want to raise their families in this kind of lifestyle. And what I can tell you is that from being someone who worked in an office, who worked in cities, who worked in restaurants, who worked under lights, worked at night, to now doing this, there is no occupation in our modern world that makes more sense. So if you want to be a farmer, it's there. There's this possibility. We just need, we need support. We need support from government. We need support from industry. We need industry to stop saying vegans bad, vegans bad, vegans bad. We need, we need industry to look at veganic agriculture and go, wow, mm -hmm. they can produce so much more. They can do it on so much more land. We can repair the earth. We need to just show, they just need to come with us because it's the right thing to do. And then yes, we do need government support. Not doesn't have to be a subsidy. Doesn't have to be socialism. Doesn't have to be communism. You know, it can be just that we want a little break. People can't afford land because it's too expensive. Yeah, it can solve so many problems. Farm. And we have an yeah. epidemic of uh, opioid addictions, and so many people are homeless, and people are living in these tent cities that are getting bigger and bigger and more out of hand, and that leads to crime and poor health and we could turn this around by giving more there people opportunity to grow food, feel good about themselves, feed their families and make sense to me, but I'm not in charge. <laughs> do you, um, no, do you... I'm not in charge either, but there are people listening that are in charge. That's right. <laughs> so do you have interns, people that work and train on your farm to learn how to do what you do? Um, no, actually, up to this point, we never did. Um, and for me, because we we're also a research farm, there was a lot of things that I wanted to understand. Um, I've always been one that I've wanted to see and do every aspect of my farming venture, because I always find all aspects of it fun. But for here specifically, I wanted to know like how much land two people could actually physically handle. And when you bring in interns, which I think is great, by the way, and we might start this year because I do think there has to be learning possibilities and there do yep. need to be learning stuff before veganics. It's very important. Um, but what I noticed on, on a lot of my voyages that a lot of people were claiming that they only needed two people or three people to work their lands, but then they would have four volunteers every week or three interns that they weren't paying very well. And, and I found it was just a way for agriculture to kind of use that idea that, oh, this is a grandiose life. Come work for me for free, for exchange, for, for just a little bit of money, but you're going to learn so much. You're going to have such an experience. It's like, well, 
yeah so anyway but no saying all that yes internships are really important um it looks like we are actually going to have someone um come at least one day a week this year because she is very interested in learning about veganics and we are at the position now where we feel like we can teach every part about it it does take a while right so um yeah so anyway to answer your question is very important just structure it well take really good care of your interns give them a lot of time off and don't use them <laughs> <laughs> okay now i'm just looking for a little advice i live in new york city i have a balcony i've been here over 20 years and i'm i haven't been home often in the summers recently but we are going to be here this summer and i've grown things over the years some things successfully some not so much i'm not sure if you have any suggestions so i I have grown some tomatoes. They were pretty pathetic. I've grown some herbs and peppers. Uh, I did used to compost on my balcony years ago. And what was fun about that is that I would put the compost on my uh, planters. And once I had a cantaloupe grow, and I have no idea where it came from, but obviously came from the seeds of my compost. So that was fun. It was a little tiny cantaloupe, but I get aphids. And, you know, you were talking about no spray. And so occasionally I would make a soapy mixture. It never worked. What do I do? Okay, what do I so, grow? Yeah, okay. So what do you grow? So as, as long as your balcony has sun. Yeah, it's facing uh, the east and we get great sun in the morning and early afternoon. Okay, great. So you have you have a great balcony um you go and try to find yourself some at least some animal manure list soils if absolutely you don't already have yeah uh and you can find it you can pretty much find it in any nursery um you want to add a little bit of sort of nitrogen fertilizer nitrogen phosphorus uh potassium fertilizer in the form of plants either soybean meal which you should be able to get or alfalfa meal which you definitely can get uh, rock phosphate, uh, which is an old fossilized rock that can be used. And, and you don't need very much. You just need a little bit just so that your plants have a little nutriment. Now, if you are already making that little bit of compost on your balcony, then you may not even need that additional fertilization. No, I don't have that anymore. Okay. So if you look at my potting mix in the book, and I have this wonderful potting mix recipe in my book, that would actually work for pots on your balcony. Excellent. Because really what you're talking about is you're basically planting in a big pot, right? <laughs> you know, we it's a small potting mix recipe, but you're basically planting in a big pot. So if you're planting in a big pot, then use a good potting mix and it should have everything that you need in there. Now, the secret for balcony gardening is because there are times where it gets really, really hot um the sun is beating on it and because it's in an urban environment it's really really warm well you want to try to create vining crops your vining plants so you can grow beans climbing beans you can mm. grow tomatoes but the ones that climb and remember what i said about watering too much like you water just enough to get it started and if you don't have the facilities in your house to start tomato seeds by yourself well, there are farmers markets that you can go to in New York City or sure, I can I can get them. Yeah. So you can get your seedlings to start. Okay, they're not veganic, but once you put them in your veganic soil, guess what? They're veganic. So mm -hmm. um 
they're gonna they're going to learn what's in your soil. Mm. So let all so try to create a sort of uh, shady environment with those perennial climbing plants. This is where permaculture comes in. So you have those, the not perennial, these, these annual climbing plants, these beans and these tomatoes and put up a stake. So they're climbing all around your balcony and they're touching your neighbors on the top shelf and on the top floor. And, and they're going, hey, what's that? Oh, I'm gonna eat that tomato. Um, and then underneath, you can have pots where it's a little bit shaded. It's not getting as much direct sun to plant things like kale, mm. which if you, if you do plant kale, you can let the kale plant grow and you can just start picking your leaves off and it will give you so much more benefit than lettuce. But the secret to all planting, especially in pots, is make sure you're using a big enough pot. You can even use five gallon buckets. That's actually really good because the roots can go very, very deep. deep. Yeah, deep, 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 deep. Um, if you have those um, those sort of planter boxes already, you can use them. But for those, you would just want to grow plants that have a little bit less root systems like lettuces or radishes, things like that. But try to create a landscape, like visualize kind of like behind me. There's plants growing on me, around me, all over. Think of that on your balcony and you will have very, very good luck. Secret, Excellent. always. Only water when they are absolutely dry. So they can have what? Nutrient uptake. There you go. <laughs> this is great information. I'm very inspired. And Jimmy, we're out of time. Thank you for joining me and All sharing right. your passion and your knowledge. I love talking about food and it's great hearing about how to grow the best food we can. Get the Veganic Grower's Handbook, Cultivating Fruits, Vegetables, and Herbs from Urban Backyard to Rural Farmyard. Delightful. Okay, that's it, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, and everyone have a delicious week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.